Stuart Waxham from uh, Young Marble Giant and Jujist, and uh, it's a really pleasure talking to you, uh, Stuart. Thank you, Johnny Manuel. It's very nice to hear from you. Thank you for asking me to do this. So, um, without further ado, I, I would like to know um, uh, because uh, how, how do you feel with um, the legacy of the uh, Young Marble Giant? Because um, Uh, like three, three or four decades after after it been released, it's still a, a cult record with uh, many covers through the years, and it's always been cited as uh, one of the best record in magazine and on different pools. So uh, I would like to know um, your uh, your feeling about uh, the way um, everyone is praising this uh, particular record. Ah, uh, well, it's wonderful. Um, it's, uh, you know, a million times better than I hoped. It, you know, it's uh, très extraordinaire, très, très extraordinaire. And um, I think the one time in my life when I overachieved, <laughs> <laughs> instead of under, instead yeah. of underachieved. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm very, very happy, and you know, um, and it's, it's, um, it's been, but, but there's another side to it for me because, um, you know, I, 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 basically my impulse, you know, uh, when, when we formed Phil, Phil and Allison and I formed Young Marble Giants, my impulse was. I wanted to become a a well a well liked uh, songwriter, mm. you know, like my heroes, you know, my songwriting heroes, and um, because the Marvel Giants was, uh, as somebody said, sui generis. Mm. Um, it's a very difficult thing to follow. You know, we, we, we Philip and I, um, we 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 found a formula, which is you know I think very obvious, isn't it? Really, that the music was made to some formula or other, and uh, so and it was very, it felt very strong. It felt very powerful. You know, we were we were able to be very relaxed when we went on tour. Um, we felt we had something, you know, which was really powerful in a way, you know, musically powerful. And I guess what I've learned is it's emotionally powerful. I, I could never understand why people loved us so much when we played live, especially when we reformed, we reunited in in the early 2000s, and uh, you know, we did a couple of gigs every year for about eight years oh. and the, the love from the audience was incredible you know and uh, we did our last ever gig at the Royal Festival Hall in 2015 and the following morning I came down into the hotel foyer and um, I was the first person of the party uh, to do that and the next person was Peter, who is Alison's husband. Mm. And I said, uh, you know, he said, oh, it was a really good night last night, wasn't it, Stuart? And I said, it was utterly amazing, you know. I said, I just don't understand, you know. I mean, it's great, it's really great, but I don't understand why people love it so much, you know. And he said, it's because the music works on the level of the heart. Mm. And then I understood. Uh, wow, like, right, okay. You know, I didn't know that, you know. It was, because everything for me, musically, is, um, I'm not educated musically. It's all kind of uh, innate, mm -hmm. you know, it's all from inside. Yeah. 
So let's listen to um, talking about uh, the way uh, the time you reunited in 2007 uh, when you did record in Wales uh, searching for Mr. Wright and um, it was for the BBC and uh, let's talk after that. Okay. And um, 
you know, and, and, and we were, the Welsh were culturally, as always happens with an invasion, you know, the culture is, they try to destroy the culture. Mm. So, and, and they steal everything from the country, you know, the wealth from the country. Um, so I think that's probably the reason why we don't have kind of a normal um, self-regard. Mm. So, but yeah, so the fact was, you know, this is long, we're talking now about the end of the 1970s, 1978, it's a long time ago when oh, yes. we started. And uh, there was no, no such thing as, you know, much interest, even in the English provinces. I mean, the Beatles obviously were the first to wake the world up to the fact that there's working class talent outside London, you know. Mm. And then that opened the door, really, uh, for so many things, obviously. Um, but anyway, so it was London or bust, you know, we had to, we had to make it in London. And as you imply in your question, uh, we knew that um, that's where, uh, that's, that's the place where it mattered. Mm. But the big difference, and I was not aware of this at the time, the big difference was that uh, labels like Rough Trade uh, were popping up around the, all around the country in all the cities of England, uh, independent labels. And I, I, I had no idea. I, there was only one television program, and I missed that program. Um, and this is in the days when there were only three television stations. I happened to miss this program about Rough Trade. And I was still thinking, oh, let's sign up to, I don't know, EMI or Decca or Parlophone or somebody, you know, labels that I knew, you know, Chrysalis or Island or whatever. But um, anyway, so. Uh, luckily, you know, I mean, it's, a lot of the success is due to friends and fans, you know, um, people like um, Spike Williams from Reptile Ranch, who was another Cardiff band at the time, um, who, who was a fan, and, and, and that, that he was much more aware of what was going on, um, and much more political, generally. And he was really excited about the idea of, you know, um, the artist must be the producer, you know, of the whole thing, mm. not just not just the recording, but the making of the record, the artwork, everything, you know, the promotion and the distribution and so on. Um, and so, because of friends like Spike, we found ourselves being invited to go up to uh, to, to Rough Trade. Um, and and that's that's. Uh, it was kind of very, very quickly we made our record um, because you know my, my whole my whole philosophy of this group was it was the most important thing in the world to me. It was my existential necessity. I had to you know succeed with this project, but at exactly the same time, I, I could not believe that it ever would work. Mm. You know. So I was planning for failure. I had no plans for success. And suddenly we had recorded, so I made everything very easy. So we only took five days to make the album, you know. Uh, we went and we played it live, basically. Alison sang live, you know. We just did what we always did. We just did our, did our set, really. and. And then the album came out, and we started gigging. And I think this—I think, I think the second gig uh, in London. I think we were headlining. Um, I might be wrong about that, but it didn't take very long before we were headlining anyway. And we we did a little tour of Western Europe, and we were definitely headlining all those gigs, you know. Um, so it, it was. Um, everything happened. The reviews for the records were incredibly good, you know, um, which we just couldn't believe it. And we didn't appreciate 
uh, what that meant, you know, in terms of um, in terms of how how corrosive and how difficult it is to live with, you know, fame. Mm. You know, um, obviously, it's not like not like being some massive Hollywood star type fame, but uh, even so, it's still the same thing. It's still, you know, difficult. Mm. And let's um, let's flash forward to uh, some uh, decades later when you work with uh, Louis Philippe because um, the question uh, I would like to know um, is, is about the evolution of your music from uh, the time, for example, when you recorded the Devil Love a few years ago with Louis Philippe and the Young Marble Giant days or when you created the guest. So uh, it's difficult to resume so many years and in such a small uh, amount of time, but uh, how do you think you, you, your music evolved and uh, the way you were evolving into your, the, the way you were practicing music when you, um, first time you stopped Young Marble Giant and then doing The Geist and then doing projects with people like Louis Philippe. I, I would like to know if you, you have a feel of evolution or, or you didn't thought much about it and you just do things Um, as, as they happen. Well, thank you very much for this question. I've been waiting for, you know, 40 odd years for someone to ask me that question. No one's ever asked me that before. And it's, it's the central thing to me as an artist, you know, as a, as a writer and a musician. Um, and I don't, I can't really say, I think about it an awful lot. Um, So to go back to the end of Young Marble Giants, um, what happened was that basically we stopped being a band in November of 1980. Mm -hmm. So, so we had seven months, we were active gigging for seven months really, after the album was made. And uh, we got back from New York and it was all over. And um, a friend of mine uh, in London, who's um, the guitarist and songwriter for Laura Logic, Phil Legg, uh, he was in the band Essential Logic. He and Laura and Sean Oliver and, um, and a few other people were squatting, like a lot of people did in the late 70s. And he invited me, he said, oh, do you want to, you know, we're squatting, we've got a room, do you want to move in? And I would said, yeah. So, Then, um, for a long time, I didn't really make any music. I just, I was in a new world, you know, um, of greatly increased marijuana uh, consumption and, and listening to really a lot of reggae, a lot of dub, Jamaican reggae, you know. Um, and, and partying and, you know, messing about, just living like, you know, I mean, two doors down were, um, were the, the other, uh, there was another band, um, I can't think what they called now, a band from uh, Birmingham who were on, on Rough Trade as well. Um, mm. Swell Maps, Swell Maps. Yeah, there's a Swell Maps, yeah, yeah. And I think they'd spit up as well. I think a lot of people had kind of, like us had kind of had this success and and it didn't last very long and then there was this period where we were squatting and sort of um you know trying to find a way forward mm. anyway so so during that period i went to visit my uh, girlfriend wendy smith who was who's at art college in nottingham she was just about to finish her degree And I went to visit her on the motorbike, and I don't know what happened, but I had woke up in hospital. Uh, I was lucky to be alive. Um, and she very, uh, at the same time, the squat was evicted. So I had nowhere to live. And she said, oh, we'll come and stay here. And uh, she was leaving to go to live in America. Um, uh, so I stayed there, I had a flat then. Um, it, but I didn't know anybody at all in, in that part of the world. Um, I made a friend uh, called Donna, Donna Thompson, um, and, and I lived there. And then it, 
I started a really, I think, a sort of slow motion nervous breakdown, really. Um, I was very, got very, very depressed, and it lasted for years. It got worse and worse. Um, and uh, in that time, I, I, because I was on my own in a place where I didn't know anybody, and I had, I was on crutches for a year with, with a, a leg right up to the top in plaster. So I kind of had to sit down, get my studio working, uh, a four-track studio, and experiment really um, with with absolutely you know no idea, uh, no direction, no nothing, you know, no compass. Just just finding out how to multi-track really, and that's what the first just album embrace the herd that's what it is really it's, just, it's me exploring how you compose uh using machinery rather than you know uh a band or whatever mm. you know so it was uh so it was a one one man band <laughs> no way yeah so it's a sort of one man band i also did I did do a couple of singles and things for Rough Trade. We did been one of the very last Young Marble Giants sessions when we did the Tescard EP. I had some material which I recorded as the gist, things like um, Here Comes Love and uh, Yanks and n not Here Comes Love. Uh, anyway, yeah, just those, those a few singles, things like Greener Grass and things like that. But those things, I was, I was very, um, I don't know. I can, the only word I can think of is numb. You know, I, I was sort of, uh, I, I was just on automatic pilot. I didn't really. I, I just made this music, and and Rough Trade were happy to release it. So I thought, well, it must be okay then. Mm. I had no new critical faculty and that's a hundred percent different from the young marble Giants because it was all critical faculty it was all what is going to be what's going to work you know knowing having the, the, the feeling that i knew the market if you like mm -hmm. you know the artistic market like knew the zeitgeist um and so that the young marble Giants stuff was made in in sort of you know that tingling consciousness you know Uh, whereas the opposite was true for the early gist stuff, you know. So um, both of them, though, were down to sort of uh, intuition on on one level, you know. Empirical, empirical way of uh, working. A difficult way? No, empirical. As um, you know, I, empirical. The, uh, yeah, empirical. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. And then. Um, Then I returned to Cardiff. I, um, my youngest brother, Andrew, at this point was um, renting um, a house with a friend and it was a big house and he said, oh, do you want to come and have a room? And I said, yeah, great, you know. So um, I got more and more depressed, uh, but I'd made more and more music. And that's what I did all the time. I, I set up my drum kit and all my equipment And um, I just recorded lots and lots of music, and, and um, I, you know, I, uh, I I sort of lost a lot of confidence because Rough Trade um, sort of got rid of uh, the gist mm -hmm. along with everybody else practically, you know, because they were changing their business model and they were signing the Smiths and um, and all that. So I didn't, I wasn't interested really in. I didn't want to go. Ever since then, I've not wanted that kind of fame thing, you know, because uh, although it sells records, it's it's horrible to live with on a personal level. So it was great. I, I just, I was completely obscure. I was back in Cardiff and I was starting the way from square one. Mm. In fact, I made a cassette of music called Square One when I was living in a square called Adamsdown Square. So, <laughs> so I was doing... And, you know, what I'd done in 1979, I was making a set of my music, you know. Um, and then eventually, you know, over the decades, I, I went to 
small labels, you know, and, and put out an album here, an album there. Um, until, you know, then I hooked up with uh, John Henderson in Chicago in the mm. early 90s. Mm. And um, I think that process of all that working and, and, and becoming really fluent at recording and starting to think about production and stuff, I actually found my voice, I found my, my personal singing voice, I think. Um, and I started to get away from the tension of young Marble Jones music. And, um, but I don't, I, I wasn't, you know, with the young Marble Jones, I was trying very hard, well, we, Phil and I, were trying very hard to create a sort of um, a unique uh, sound, you know. Yeah, something new. Yeah. Yeah, but um, but after that, in this, you know, from sort of what eighty onwards, um, I wasn't I wasn't so much interested in that. I was interested in um, what the studio could do. Um, and then another major change was that I met my wife to be in eighty. And we moved out of Cardiff and into London, and I, I started to play acoustic guitar um, a little while before that move, and I decided I'd just be a guy with an acoustic guitar, and I did a few gigs and things, um, and and that's a huge change, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, there's a world of difference between electric guitar and acoustic guitar. Um, I think the acoustic guitar is much more expressive in a way, you know, um, at least sonically, you know. So that was a huge uh, influence in a way on my songwriting because the instrument is a, is a big part of of the writing. Mm. Um, and I was just really, I've just been enjoying myself really, you know. Uh, the Immortal Jazz was kind of, it was, it was, it was brilliant. It was a bit like, you know, cocaine, you know, it's very high octane, everything is marvellous, you're doing something you think is great, you know, and uh, and now it's more like real ale, you know, it's like, you know, fun, relaxed, tasteful. <laughs> I'm talking about um, relaxes as well, in fact, the pleasure of being on having less pressure on uh, being more relaxed is to work with people you you, you like like uh, for example Louis Philippe because uh, I'm making the transition to um, turn the track uh, the day must come from uh, the devil love so let's listen to that and then we go back to, to talk about uh, Louis Philippe and uh, on the people you you work it you work with yes so um, I, I've always had It turns out I've always liked it, liked to involve other people, and particularly friends, you know, in Wales, you know, gives them an opportunity to have a track on a gist album or something, you know. And I just I find it easier personally to have people with me on stage or whatever like that, you know. And uh, and it's more fun. It's sociable, you know. Um, I think Louis. Well, it's, I, I know that Louis was the first person after Young Marble Giants.
can tell you now that you're the only one. Got to get to you somehow before the album so um, just let's talk uh, about uh, Louis Philippe and you uh, the, um, your working uh, musical relationship with him okay well I was approached by um, a man called Christian Favray, uh who is the brother of the editor of Les Inoptibles yes. magazine And he asked me if I would like to make an album. So I said, yes, I would. <laughs> And he said at the time, this was in the, this was in the very early 1990s. At the time he said, oh, there's not really a good studio in, in Paris. Uh, so uh, we will have to find somewhere in London. And uh, He said, um, there's, a, uh, there's a guy there called Louis Philippe and um, he'll find somewhere for you. And uh, so I met Louis one morning um, in Parsons Green in, in West London, uh, outside a studio called Momentum. And uh, the studio wasn't open yet. So we went for a coffee and uh, the, co the cafe was called Café Louis. <laughs> so we became friends, you know, we, it, we got on straight away. We were instantly comfortable with each other and liked each other. And um, we had our coffee and we walked back to the studio and it was open. And Louis introduced me to the engineer for the album session, and his name was Ken Brake. Now, Louis had just done an album at the studio with Ken, which is why he was recommending it. And Ken and I became really good friends as well, straight away. So it was an extraordinary hour in my life where I met two of the greatest friends Uh, I've ever had, and especially in, in terms of music, because Ken, although at the time he didn't he didn't uh, play an instrument um, or, or write songs, um, you know he was he was in, he was very important. It was really it became a thing of the three of us. So 
I started to record this album, which was um, called Random Rules, and um, Christian uh, and his friends in Paris uh, created a label called Peak, and it was released. Um, and during the sessions, Louis stayed, you know, um, and he, every now and again he would contribute something. And, uh, and I liked what he did, you know, and it was very different. And I got to know his music, which was a, a revelation to me, um, because I, I hadn't really heard any contemporary French music, you know, apart from things that might get through onto the British charts, you know, occasionally. So that's, that's how, that's how we started out. And then I realized um, I wanted to do more work with Louis. So I invited him to uh, work with Ken and me um, on uh, the second album we, we were involved in, which was uh, The Huddle House. Oh. And um, that, that album, was, it was a question of um, visiting London, uh, visiting Ken, and Louis would come at the same time and uh, and we would do some work for two days or three days or one day. And it took actually 10 years uh, for that record to come out. <laughs> um, we also, Louis and I also did, did occasional things. Uh, he came to my house at one point in the mid, mid late 90s and we did some work, recorded some tracks on my digital eight track um so it wasn't just these albums there were other things that we did um and uh and then yeah finally um we we recorded uh, the devil laughs um and of course we involved uh, we did gigs as well um louis and i and quite often with his um his uh sidekick danny manners oh. who's you know a great uh uh, he plays piano and, uh, and bass and he's a great guy um, and so uh, so so that's that's basically um, the story but the, the, the fact is I realized quite early on that Louis was the first person after my brother Phil Phil Moxon he was the first person that I really felt that um, that very creative, comfortable, musical um, relationship, you know, <laughs> somebody that I could, I could trust, somebody who understood and, and somebody who did things that I liked, you know, that sort of very essential thing. Yeah. And then you, for the same label, uh, you recorded interior, the interior windows as just and um, and uh, it was about time because you, you know uh, Michel Polnareff took uh, maybe like 30 years to record uh, his new album and uh, Smile have been released 34 years. <laughs> so I don't know how, how long it takes. It, it did takes from uh, the previous, the just one and just one and the last one, but it, it did take a while. And uh, so uh, a lot of people were happy finally to have interior windows. And uh, we listen to uh, the track uh, "Working It Out," and uh, then uh, let's talk about his uh, last album. Okay. Like birds on the wing, you're 
so yes i created a huge amount of music i did go and i did release um a couple of albums um i i recorded an album from 88 1988 to uh 1990 um myself at my own expense and uh i even had a test pressing made i didn't have a, a title for this for this record but i couldn't get anyone interested i'm not business like and i you know i didn't really know how to get it you know uh, released properly so um fortunately um a friend i'd made in america with um when i was there with the young marble giants um a guy called mike appelstein um i was uh i guess i was writing to him you know maybe it was email i can't remember uh, i don't think it was email in those days in the early 90s but anyway i was in touch with with him maybe we phoned each other and i was telling him about this album i had and he said oh you should bring up this guy called john henderson in chicago he's got a label so i did and uh we had we had this telephone conversation for about two hours and uh, he, ultimately he invited me over to chicago and um he released the album which came out as signal path and I, I, you know, I, he, he put me on tour, and I, I, I did, I produced a few recordings for other people and things like that. And I did that for three years in a row. I was over there for about two months each time. Um, and after that, at some point, um, I, without looking at the record, I can't really tell you the dates, but um, I got involved with a label in London called Vinyl Japan. Mm which you may know um, yes, yeah it's run by a, a japanese man Tetsuyuk. uh and uh and uh, so and i also did i did i re-released things um through uh Riker disc and uh cherry red and i also got the home recordings of him marble giants uh re-released um uh it's an album called um salad days which was on um final japan as well yeah so so there was there, there were some records coming out but basically i was making and still am making much more music than was ever released so I, it was a, I knew I was in for a long game and that was fine I didn't want to be in the public eye you know really I didn't I was not confident about that at all so uh, eventually it got to a point around about I don't know 2016 17 something like that where I just felt it's, what I'm doing is a bit pointless, you know, if it's not being released. Yeah. I, I got quite downhearted. I thought, well, I might as well stop, you know, this is silly. Um, and I knew that John Henderson had sort of disappeared. Nobody knew where he was or what he was doing. He wasn't doing music anymore. So I thought, I'll, I'll look on Facebook and, and there he was on Facebook and we we met up he was living in at the time in budapest and he said uh, uh you know have you been writing i said yeah i've got i've got loads of stuff he said how many songs have you got and i said well, i don't know uh 30 50 i'm not sure you know he said well bring me everything you've got you know and so i, I took cds and dap tapes and reel to reel and cassette everything and uh, he, he then went to a, at a local studio in Budapest, had it all put down onto the computer. And it was four hours worth of music. And since then, it's, it's, he's been listening to it all a million times, trying to think what to do with it. And he decided the best thing to do was to pick up where I had left off in 1981 or 82 with the gist. So he said, what we should do is take these tracks here 
and released another Gist album, and then another one after that. Uh, so Holding Pattern and Interior Windows. And then the next album, which is coming out at the end of this year, as far as we know, is is, is um, stuff which, which is not necessarily the gist. It's kind of, it's all stuff that's never been out before. And it goes right the way across the whole of my writing time, you know. So it's called Fabstract. And, um, and that will be the last of the sort of compilation type recordings. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just taken a long time, you know. But for this new, uh, for this forthcoming album, uh, uh, it, uh, under which name it will, would it be released? Under the Gist name or Stuart Moxham or...? That's a good question. Um, I think it's Stuart Moxham, yeah. Yes, abstract, yeah. So we will look for, for it. And, uh, so it, it will still be in a tiny, glo tiny global production uh, label? It will be on Tiny Global, yeah, that's right, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so before we end up this um, podcast, Uh, I would like to know um, your opinion, you know, there's, uh, for example, the song we're uh, working now to play and, and your record sleeve note, it says that it's, it's reminded me um, of uh, people from uh, Brian Wilson on demo. And I was thinking about, you know, the time you, time you say you, when the time you were depressed and you're feeling bad and you have to, but you hopefully you have a family and day job, etc. And uh, I was thinking about, you know, Sid Barrett or Brian Wilson of, of pop casualties, people who, who yeah. some people who disappear and come back and some of her, like Sid Barrett, she was completely fed out the scene. Yeah. And, um, so, and uh, luckily uh, it wasn't your case because you, you come back and you, you have um, Uh, healthy uh, on equilibrated life, but uh, I would like to know um, if you understand. Looking back to you know to uh, to the artist who finally uh, couldn't take the pressure because you say a lot of people say, for example, for Sid Barrett, oh you know he was crazy and take too many drugs, but uh, I have a theory that I would like to share with you, like Brian Wilson. So may, of course they they may have some mental issues and as well as some um, drugs taken, but yeah. at the same time, don't you think that the main problem was? Uh, Too much pressure for the record industry. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and not not necessarily the record industry, um, although that is definitely in my case that was a part of it. You know, I mean, I felt uh, I didn't feel pressure, not from not from Jeff Travis, not from Rough Trade, but but you know, if you have that opportunity, you know, it's it's what it's the gold, the holy grail to have a really good record label who want to release what you're doing and so you i felt well you know i really want to produce things for them you know um but i think more more pressuring than that really um is uh the whole business of um being in the public or, or fame mm -hmm. if you want, in a word you know Uh, I think that's n not discussed often enough, and it's as you say, it's a very um, cliched dynamic that people, you know, become famous and uh, and and they take too many drugs and they they either fade away or they die. You know, it's unusual for them to come back, and especially to come back and do something good. Uh, but I think my entire, you know, my entire problem really was, um, no, not, not, that's not right. Let me think about this. I think on a very deep level, on a sort of intuitive level, like an animal that's wounded, I just went back into safety. I went back into my cave to lick my wounds, you know, and... And I am just uh, somebody who's creative, and, and so I, I, I wasn't worried about um, how long it would take. You know, mm -hmm. I wasn't worried about, I was, I was concerned about being able to express myself well 
you know, I felt that I did that really well with Young Marble Giants. And I, I knew I had this, you know, I'm not, I'm not musically trained at all. Um, and I haven't, I haven't, I haven't um, tried to be, I haven't source, sought out an education, musical education. Um, I, I just uh, work from inspiration mm-hmm. and I, I, I wanted, um, I wanted to find my path after Young Marble Jones, my creative musical path. And I knew it would be difficult and I knew that a lot of what I was doing was, um, it's like a like a an insect leaving its uh, exoskeleton, you know, shedding its exoskeletons, and you know, or, or a snake, you know, where you you grow and you become uh, refreshed, and and you leave behind the evidence of who you were. It's a bit like that, you know. So, um, I'm really glad that I did that. I'm really glad that I, I was completely obscure, more or less. I just made these albums on Vinyl Japan or Feel Good All Over in Chicago, which only sold in small numbers, you know. I also, I also did my own record label called Habit Records, and I put out a couple of records on that um, in the 2000s. Um, so I, I was trying uh, you know, to to get back into um, being better known for what I was doing. Um, and it was, it was a kind of a comfortable way of doing it. Um, but yes, I think I think it saved me that I, I, I got away from, from the spotlight, you know, and uh, just concentrated on the work. Because ultimately, you know, um, you know, I'm an artist, you know, I, I write, you know, I, and uh, I make music and so on. And um, that is the important thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, but it's also important to be, to be known about, you know, it's, it's important that, that people can um, have a chance to know what you're doing and it's very important for me to get feedback you know so the, the, the internet is just the most wonderful thing you know because mm-hmm. now i know i know who some of my my fans are you know and i, I meet them and uh, and i i talk with them and i write to them you know and it's a mutual thing mm-hmm. all over the world and and that is really uh very very important you know um i'm i'm you know, I'm a bit of a hermit, and uh, so it's it's um, it suits me very well. You know, uh, so and it's encouraging. You know, so you find an, um, some kind of equilibrium, uh, um, the, the, the way you settle now, and uh, and um, instead of uh, the pressure of. Uh, at the beginning of Young Marble Giant. It seems that nowadays you're more uh, at peace with yourself and uh, and as yeah. well um, um, some kind of balance uh, yeah. in the in the way you create. Yes, very, that's very, very true. Yeah, that's, that's really true. I mean, it's partly getting older. It's partly that I was very lucky. I met a beautiful woman and we married and we had beautiful children and we still do. They're adults now, of course. That was very important as well. Um, miraculous, you know. And uh, um, and also, I, I had to do jobs which were really humble. You know, I've always done really humble jobs. Like, I, I'm mostly driving, you know, delivering parcels or... Um, I worked in animation on a very basic level. Uh, You know, I worked, because I've lived for a long time near Salisbury, Salisbury Plain, near Stonehenge. Um, that's where the English, the British Army is, is, uh, is based. Um, I, it's, the Ministry of Defence is the biggest employer 
in this area where I live. So um, I, I drove for them. I was, you know, uh, for a long time. Um, that was very interesting. Uh, it put me, it put my feet on the ground, you know, mm-hmm. doing, doing these jobs. You know, I, I was, I was this guy, you know, going around London, delivering parcels mm-hmm. or driving a taxi at night, or you know, I, I think that did me a lot of good as well. You know, but sure, um, getting older, and I also had some therapy, not a great deal, but I've had good therapy, um, and uh, yeah. So I, I, a long time ago, I started to feel more comfortable, really, in my in myself. And yes, I think I can say. You know, especially with someone like Louis Philippe wanting to work with me, I mean, you know, I'm impressed by Louis. He's kind of the other side of the coin from me. You know, he's the, he's the guy who knows all about music, and he's like a musicologist, really. And um, and and we get, and it's a wonderful thing that we can work together because he will tell me what I'm doing in musical terms. It doesn't really, I don't understand what he's saying. When he says, oh, the, you know, we rehearsed for the, a gig recently um, um, with Life is a Minestrone in mm-hmm. Paris. And um, and I brought quite a lot of new songs. Um, in fact, it's the first gig I've done where I didn't play any Young Marble Giants songs at all. Um, and I did a lot of new stuff and he didn't know it. And we had two days to rehearse. And of course, he's very quick. And he knows what I do better than I do. And he says to me, this what you do is this, you know, and this is why it's interesting. And uh, and then he says, oh, wait, wait, wait. He goes to the piano and he work out the chord that I, I was playing, or the sequence of chords. And and he'd say, this is amazing. You know, this is, it's an A above the E with a diminished thing. And I don't know what he's talking about, you know, but I'm excited because, you know, apparently it's clever, you know, but I, I, I just, I, I do it. I, I learned, taught myself by, you know, my fingers on the instrument, you know, on the keys or on the frets, you know. And if it sounds good, if you like it, we'll do it, you know, that's basically it. So, yeah, but it's a very interesting and um, the way of working without thinking previously of what you are gonna, will do and just do it as it, as it goes. And uh, so, um, thank you very much for your time. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, and we can wait for the next, uh, maybe to just our Stuart Moxham album, uh, which should uh, be out, as you say, the, at the beginning of the next year. Yes, or maybe December. Maybe. We don't know yet. <laughs> so let's stay tuned on the social networks, and we'll we know. Okay, thank you, Jean Emmanuel. Thank It's you very much. Okay, au revoir. <laughs> Après dix mes qu'on l'est parce qu'il me fallait tout que nos pouviquer ma petite cervelle Disquette fait péter des petits riels d'âme au vent. 
Fallait tout tard au blé, tout est donné, ne rien y passer. Fallait finfler, servait, et coupe au bus, et coupe au bus. A cette il fait couper, il fait couper, comme on l'a qu'à, comme on l'a qu'à, il fait couper, il fait couper. A cette il fait couper, il fait couper, comme on l'a qu'à, comme on l'a qu'à, comme on l'a qu'à. A cette il fait couper, il fait couper, comme on l'a qu'à, comme on l'a qu'à, il fait couper. Come on. 